Good morning. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 8. I had a very good time at the men's retreat this weekend. My thanks again to the guys who put that together. It was enjoyable and profitable time of fellowship. We are turning this morning in our Bibles to Daniel chapter 8. I ask you to imagine, please, that God appears to Moses at the burning bush, gives him his mission. Moses and Aaron uh, go to Egypt. They perform the signs that God gave them. And Aaron says to the uh, elders of Israel, I've got good news. God has sent us here to lead you out of Egypt. Is that true? If Aaron had gone back and said that, would that be true? Yes and no. God did not send Moses and Aaron to lead them out of Egypt. He sent them to lead them out of Egypt into the promised land. It is not the same thing. God did not just send Moses and Aaron to save them from their slavery. He sent them also to save them unto a new life of worship, covenant-keeping, conquest, and dominion. And only if Aaron and Moses went back and told him the whole picture would they, strictly speaking, be telling the truth. If I could have the first slide, please. This failure to own the second half of the good news is what got the Israelites into so much trouble. Recall that they were slaves here in Goshen. Moses leads them out. They come down here to Mount Sinai, spend about a year down there. They head up here, and they're supposed to go in and conquer Canaan. That's where they fail. They refuse to go in and conquer Canaan. They like the idea of being led out of Egypt. We're no longer slaves. But this, this other half of the gospel, what they were saved unto, what God wanted to do with them after they were saved out of Egypt, that they refused to accept. It's easier to be a slave. No responsibility. No risk. You always know where your next meal is coming from. It was not enough to no longer be slaves. God had big plans for them, and they refused to accept them. Thank you. You can turn that off. Oh, wait a minute. Actually, I still need it. Thank you. Okay. Well, here's the question I want to ask you this morning. Where are we right now, the church? All right, uh, Christ has saved us out of our slavery in sin, so obviously we're no longer in Egypt. Fine. But where are we now? Are we here in the wilderness? Or are we here in Canaan, the promised land? Are we waiting... Or all is, is our wait over? Uh, to, to a- okay, now I can turn it off. Thank you very much. Uh, to, to ask the question differently, uh, did, did Christ establish his kingdom uh, when he first came to earth such that the, the Christian life is now a life of conquering and ruling the earth? Or are we waiting for Christ to come back and establish his kingdom in his second coming, in which case this life is essentially, we're, we're, we're basically in standby mode. We're, we're in hibernate. And we're, we're in the wilderness, and we're waiting until Christ comes back to lead us into Canaan. My purpose this morning is to convince you that the wait is over. That the wait is over. Christ has established his kingdom on earth. He has saved us out of our slavery for this purpose, that we might extend and prosper his kingdom. Oh, one more time. You're doing great. You're doing great. We are here. Right now, not here. Thank you. 
he's doing better than me. We, we had this uh, uh, men's retreat, and uh, I was tired, so I'm, I'm like typing in these notes last night at uh, Silver Diner, and it's, it's about midnight. And I hit a button or two, whole sermon, gone. And I mean, gone, gone. <laughs> Irretrievable. And in, in all my years of school ministry, I've never once deleted a document that I'm working on. So, it's, so I look at the little clock, it says like 12.07 a.m. And it's like, wow, yeah, yeah, okay. So, uh, so you're, you're, you're doing great. Okay, super. All right, uh, let's, let's look at Daniel uh, 8, starting uh, at verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa the capital, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased. And became great. Next slide, please. Daniel's vision of a uh, ram concerns the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire was made up of two main groups of people. There were the Medeans right here and the Persians here. And uh, early on in this kingdom, this empire, the uh, Medeans were more important. And so those are the two horns. The the shorter one at first was the Persians, because early on the Medeans were more important. But uh, as time went on, the, the Persians became the more important part of the empire, and so that horn grows up. And it's, in fact, Cyrus, a Persian, who ends up conquering Babylon. This, pro- this uh, section I just read is a prediction of how the uh, Persians would conquer Babylon. They do do that in uh, 539 B.C., and uh, end up with this as their empire circa 500 B.C., Super. Let's continue. Verse 5. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, meaning to the Persian empire, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal. And he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Same slide. This next prophecy about the uh, goat is about the Greek empire of Alexander the Great. He, uh, the Greeks are the... Goat and the big horn is Alexander the Great in 334 BC. He begins a campaign to conquer uh, all of the Persian Empire, which he does. Uh, it all becomes uh, a Greek Empire. But uh, you, you remember the saying when Alexander saw the, the breadth of his domain, he wept because there were no more worlds left to conquer. He conquers the world and then he dies. All right, uh, at, uh, at a very young age, in 323. And so suddenly he's conquered the world and he's dead. What are they going to do with his kingdom? His four main surviving generals break it up amongst the four of them. And that is where we get uh, verse 8. The, uh, the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, when Alexander the Great was at the height of his power, the horn was broken, he dies. 
and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns, his four generals, and they break up the kingdom of uh, the Greek empire into four pieces. Thank you very much. We'll continue at verse 9. Out of one of them came a little horn. Out of one of those four Greek kingdoms came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it, together with the regular burnt offering, because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary, and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Third slide. One of the four uh, empires went to one of uh, Alexander's generals named Seleucus. And even after he died, his empire was called the Seleucid Empire, which uh, encompassed uh, Persia, Babylon. And early on, it did not encompass Palestine, where the Jews were. However, as time went on, the uh, Seleucids expanded, uh, defeated the Ptolemies, and took Palestine. In 170... BC, if memory serves me correctly, uh, a new king arose in the Seleucid Empire. His name was Antiochus IV. He took the name Epiphanes, meaning God manifest. He considered himself Zeus in the flesh. And this prophecy is mainly about him. He is that little horn. He grows exceedingly great. Some of the hosts and some of the stars he throws down to the ground and tramples on them. He is the first person to systematically persecute the Jews for their religion. In uh, 167, he enters the temple. He pillages it, steals all the stuff out of it, and uh, sets up an altar to Zeus in the temple and uh, requires Jews to either worship Zeus or they are executed. And, and uh, there's a huge persecution. Thousands upon thousands of Jews are executed for refusing to worship Zeus. Uh, this, this lasts about three and a half years. That's where we get the uh, 2,300 evenings and mornings. It comes out to about three and a half years. There was a, a Jewish rebel named Judas Maccabeus who led a revolt against uh, the Seleucids and uh, finally drive them out in, uh, I think it's uh, 164 B.C., uh, and rededicate the temple. Antiochus Epiphanes, the little horn. Super. You can turn that off. Now, uh, l- let me pause here for a sec and uh, say a word to those of you who don't like history. Uh, I, I'm a history major in college. I, I uh, enjoy history very much. Uh, if you don't, I love you just as much, okay? Uh, but uh, I have to talk about history this morning because that's what this passage is about. I mean, there is no possible way for me to explain this passage except imparting to you historical information. So, uh, well, if you don't like history, I'm sorry, but you just have to deal, okay? Because that is the only way you're actually going to understand what this prophecy is about. Uh, I, I will uh, challenge you with this. The, the Old Testament gives us uh, an inspired record of all the key historical events from creation all the way to Christ. And, and God obviously wants us to have that. Did George Washington really exist? You know that? Your dollar bill says so. Praise the Lord for your dollar bill. 
how do we know George Washington existed? Say, okay, we read about it in history books. We can go to Mount Vernon, see it, see the paintings, see the dollar bills, etc. All right. Are any of those things inspired? Inerrant? Could they be mistaken? It's possible. Now, in this case, it's, it's very unlikely, all right, that someone thought up George Washington as a myth. But the point is, is that the only history book that we can be 100% certain of, that everything in it is completely true, is the Bible. And for, for his own purposes, God has recorded for us an inspired history of events, all the way from creation to 4,000 years later to the coming of Christ. And he wants us to know that. And I'm not going to spend uh, further time this morning dealing with that, uh, come back in a month, please, April 5th. I'm going to preach on Daniel 11, try to present a Christian philosophy of history and why it is that God wants us to know history. So if, if you're just absolutely determined not to learn it, maybe that's a good week to, I don't know, stay home and watch the Disney Channel or something. But, but uh, uh, just, just for now, just let me say that uh, God wants us to have this uh, record of history, and that's why uh, I need to talk about it this morning. Let's continue in Daniel 8, verse 15. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. By the way, why do we understand it and he doesn't? Hindsight is 20-20. Hindsight is twenty twenty. It's easy to understand what a prophecy is about if it's in our past. It was in his future. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man, and I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Medea and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king, meaning Alexander the Great. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, meaning Antiochus Epiphanes, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction, and shall succeed in what he does, and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. And he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Allow me to make three comments on this section that I just read. First, if you look back with me at verse 17, at the end of that verse... The angel says, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. The time of the end. And again, if you skip to verse 19 at the end, it says that the vision refers to the appointed time of the end. 
Now, uh, today in America, if I could ask you, when most Christians hear that phrase, the time of the end, what immediately pops into their head? The apocalypse, the second coming, the, the end of the world, the end of the universe, judgment day. What I'd like to challenge you with is that the word end does not always mean end. Right? There's nothing magical about the word end. It's not like every time that word appears in the Bible, we have to assume it's about the second coming. Indeed, in this case, it is not. It's not about the end of the, second, uh, the, end of the universe, the end of history. It seems in this case, it's simply about the end of the, uh, either one of these empires or the end of the persecution under the Seleucid, something like that. The, the end he's talking about is, is something that happened back in that time. And, and I really want to challenge you uh, that each time you hear these, these words that are, are so often associated with the second coming, you don't automatically just click second coming into your mind. Uh, another, another great example is the word coming. All right, if you turn back with me to Daniel 7, please, verses 13 and 14. Daniel 7, verses uh, 13 and 14. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Again, uh, my experience is when most Christians see that word, came, just instantly they substitute in second coming. But let me challenge you, you should not do that. Is this passage even about the second coming? Where is Daniel when he has this vision? Oh, someone tell me. Where is he? In, he's in vision land, and where is he when he sees this? He's in heaven. He's in heaven. That is where he's located when he sees this. So when he says, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. What direction is Jesus going? From earth to heaven. This is a prophecy, not about the second coming. It's a prophecy about what? About the ascension. It's a prophecy about the ascension. There's nothing magical about the word came. Jesus came to heaven on that day. And he was presented before the Ancient of Days. And to him on that day was given a throne. He sat at the right hand of the Father. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. When you hear these words, end or come, do not just automatically assume they are about the second coming. If you would turn with me back now to uh, Daniel chapter 8. Uh, a second thing I wanted to comment on was at the very end of verse 26, uh, Daniel is told to seal up the vision for it refers to many days from now. Uh, for many years, I never really understood that. To, to seal something literally means to you know, put a, a wax seal on it so that no one can read it. Okay? And that, that cannot possibly be what it means. Because if no one was allowed to read it, then no one would know about it. And then when these events finally happened, if someone pulled out the scroll of Daniel and said, look, God prophesied all these amazing things, what would people say to him? They would say, what? Uh, well, more than that. Let's say, let's say I suddenly pull out a document and say, wow, this is an amazing prophecy about, you know, how Hitler is going to, you know, conquer all of Europe and, the, you know, the armies of righteousness will come and stomp on him. All right. And I, isn't this great? Would you be impressed? It's what? Yeah, it's written after the fact. 
I think, what's the big deal about me writing something in which I claim to predict stuff that happened in the past? So the only way that, that these prophecies would impress people, which they were supposed to impress people, is, is if people knew about them before these events actually happened. So I don't think seal up means hide it. I actually think seal up means make lots of copies of it. Make lots, lots of copies so that when we finally get to these events, the, remember, this is intended first and foremost for the Jews experiencing these events. When we finally get to those events, these prophecies are well known, and Lord willing, God's people can take encouragement from these prophecies. When, they're, uh, when Babylon falls, they'll be able to look at this and, and know that God's in charge, that he's the one who did this. When Persia falls to the Greeks, they'll be able to look at this and, and know that God is the one who did it. When, when Antiochus is persecuting you, you'll be able to look at this and know that God is in charge, and indeed he's the one who will end that persecution. Third and finally, please look with me at uh, verse 27, which Daniel says, I love this sentence, then I rose and went about the king's business. Look at the verse as a whole. He says, and I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for many days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. All right, so even after the angel explains it to him, he still doesn't get it for the obvious reason that it's referring to events in the, in the future from his perspective, and uh, there's no w- real way to understand it till, till after the fact. But what is his response to not understanding? He gets up and he goes to work. Right? And, and uh, so many times I've, I've encountered Christians who say, you know, listen, all this prophecy stuff, I just don't get it, I don't understand it, and, and I give up. And I don't really think I can have a problem with that because Daniel didn't get it. All right. But what are you supposed to do with that fact that you don't understand it? What's the default setting? You're supposed to rise up and go about the king's business. My experience is that most Christians use their lack of understanding as an excuse. Uh, I want the first slide again, please. You know, someone looks at all these prophecies and says, I don't get it. And they use it as an excuse. Ha! I don't get it. So that means I don't have to do anything. I can be passive. I can spend my life here in the wilderness waiting. <laughs> if you don't understand it, fine. So what? You're still supposed to be there, going about the king's business. You've got work to do. And the fact that you don't understand this is no excuse for not building the kingdom of God. If you look with me, please, back at Daniel 8, verses 20 and 21. The angel says to Daniel, As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Medea and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece. You recall that in Daniel 2 and in Daniel 7, uh, the prophecies were not so clear. We had uh, the four pieces of the statue, and then we had the, in chapter 2, and we had the four uh, help me, beasts in Daniel 7, and the angel never explicitly explains what they are. But here we get a, an explicit explanation of uh, who the, and I keep getting the animals mixed up, who in my mind, who the ram is, the Persians, and who the goat is, the Greeks. Why the change? Why the greater specificity in this chapter? And I believe the answer is found by grabbing a section of Daniel. Here's what I'd like you to do. I want you to turn to chapter 2, please. I want you to grab 2 through 7. Can you do this? Maybe support your Bible. Don't rip it. But 
please grab this section of Daniel, chapters 2 through 7. This section of Daniel is written not in Hebrew, but in Aramaic. Aramaic was the lingua franca of that time, meaning it was the common language that everyone spoke. It is the only real section of the Old Testament that's written in another language. I realize there's a few documents in Aramaic elsewhere. But basically, here we've got one section that's not written in Hebrew. It's written in Aramaic instead. And what that means is that this section of the Old Testament is evangelistic in nature. It is written not only for the benefit of God's people, it's written for evangelistic purposes to reach out to their captors, to the uh, Babylonians, to the Persians, who spoke Aramaic. In other words, it is the only section of the Old Testament explicitly aimed at a wider audience. The only section explicitly aimed at a wider audience, not just at Jews, but to Gentiles. Turn with me to Mark chapter 4. Please turn with me to Mark chapter 4. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. My uh, fellow men's retreat brothers, tired this morning, I'm with you. It's all good. It's all good. When one of my students falls asleep in class, I, uh, you know, I say to them, I, I don't mind a certain number of people falling asleep. I always know that some are going to fall asleep when I preach, no matter what. Because maybe a baby was up all night crying. Maybe a man had to work a double shift. You don't know. All right? That's just this is reality. The only thing that concerns me is when a greater percentage than usual <laughs> fall asleep. Uh, so, uh, well, please don't fall asleep. <laughs> Uh, what, I, what I'm uh, trying to uh, explain here is why in Daniel 8 uh, the angel is specific, identifying the uh, ram and the goat as two specific kingdoms, and why he's not, he does not use that same degree of specificity in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. That's what I'm trying to explain. All right, I want you to look with me at Mark 4, starting at verse 1. And he, meaning Jesus, began to teach beside the sea. A very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he, t- he was teaching them many things in parables. And he goes on to give the parable of the sower, and the sower sows seeds and different kinds of soil and whatnot, all right? Now, the key idea here is, to whom is he speaking? He's not just speaking to his disciples. His disciples are in the crowd, but he's, he's speaking to a whole crowd of people, a, a mixed crowd, a, a people of his disciples, of people who are moderately interested, of people who, actually, people who actually have no real interest in what he's saying. They're just there for some entertainment. And so wh- when he has a big crowd of mixed a mixed audience. He always teaches in parables. Now skip down to verse uh, 10. It says, And when he was alone, meaning with his core disciples, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And then he goes on to explain the parable. So there's, I, what I want you to understand is that Jesus teaches differently depending upon the audience. When he's got a mixed crowd, he speaks in parables, and the people don't understand him, and that's the point. The purpose of parables is so that people will not understand what he's saying, all right? And then, then he tests the crowd. That's the point. He, he walks away. What are they going to do with the parable he just gave them? Some, oh, nice story, walk away. Some will insist on more. They will come to him. They will pursue him. I don't understand it. Explain it. Those are the people that he explains it to. So you go back to Daniel, and you see the same pattern. Daniel 2 through 7 are aimed at a, at a wider audience, not just Jews, but, a, but an audience of Gentiles as well. So it's a, it's a mixed crowd, and so we, we would expect less specificity, less, less actual communication, and that's exactly what we get. The, uh, 
parts of the statue aren't identified except for the first. The, the four beasts aren't identified. But then we get to Daniel 8. We're back into Hebrew. This is uh, directed specifically to God's people. So uh, God teaches differently. God teaches them differently. Now, thankfully, we are God's people, and we do have Daniel 8, and it, it has been translated for us. Oh, just let me pause. I, I know some of you are really into missions, and I've been a missionary in cross-cultural ministry for many years, and I just really encourage you to, to use Daniel 2 through 7. I mean, there's so little... Just I'm looking for the missionary people. I mean, there's, there's so little of the Bible that's written to unbelievers. I mean, it's almost all written to believers. You've got uh, Isaiah 40 to 66, which is evangelistic, trying to lead the Jews in exile to to faith in God. You've got uh, the Gospel of John, and you've got the evangelistic sermons in Acts. And and you've got this, Daniel, that's about it, you know, in terms of stuff that's explicitly written with an evangelistic purpose in mind. So, I mean, if if you're into missions, I mean, make hay out of this. I mean, yeah, use it. You, you've, got, you've got something here that was uh, intended to reach a, an unchurched people in another culture, and, uh, oh, gosh. If you've, if you've spent months or years trying to learn someone's language so you can explain the gospel to them, oh, you know. You know that life is a never-ending battle against the curse of Babel. And you're just fighting it constantly. And, oh, this is so encouraging that... that that the word of God came in their language, a sort of a symbolic overthrow of the curse of Babel, so that we get to Pentecost, and, and they're all proclaiming the wonders of God in, in everyone's tongues, and they can understand them. Oh, God is saying from this point on, the gospel will go forth into all the languages of the world. Mm, 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 mm. Ooh, it's exciting. And, 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 so, and so the New Testament is written in Greek, not in Hebrew, which was the language of that, of that age, that everyone might understand it. Oh. Use Daniel 2 through 7 if you uh, are doing cross-cultural ministry. Okay, now, to, uh, to get back to Daniel 8, please. Um, verses 20 and 21 again, if you would. After the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Medea and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece. Uh, it's, it's my belief that what's most useful about this is that it enables us to interpret Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. If you would turn back with me, please, to Daniel 2. Verse 36, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's had a dream of a, of a great statue, and Daniel gives the king an interpretation, Daniel 2, starting at verse 36. We will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over, over them all. You are the head of gold. If you would please um, put the fourth slide up. Super, thank you. So he, he explicitly tells Nebuchadnezzar that the head of gold represents his kingdom. But, so that's, that's Babylon right there. But he, he goes on and says that there'll be another kingdom, another kingdom, another kingdom. And he never identifies what they are. Uh, by the way, it's only four kingdoms. Uh, someone was telling me they thought the feet of clay was a fifth kingdom. It's not. That's just trying to explain that, that this kingdom is a, sort of a polyglot type kingdom, the Roman Empire. Uh, Calvin says that the ten toes and the ten horns are the ten provinces, the regions of the Roman Empire, each with their own culture, each with their own king. Uh, Maybe Calvin's right. Maybe he's wrong. But the the key idea is that there are four. That's not a fifth. All right? But we don't know what these are. So we get to Daniel 7. And in 
uh, verses 4 and following, and he has a vision of four beasts, but we, we don't, none of them are identified. All right, we, here, here are the four beasts. So what do we do? We don't understand? We just have to give up? Well, no, because these events happened in the past. Hindsight is twenty twenty. We can understand what Daniel couldn't. Uh, we know from Daniel 5 that what empire destroyed Babylon? Yeah, all right? So we know that the next one is that. We know from this passage in Daniel 8 that it's the Greeks that come after them. So that identifies the three. And since, since uh, all three uh, refer to a specific empire, it's reasonable to assume that this one does as well. And we know from the New Testament that, in fact, the fourth one that came after Greece was the, uh, the Roman Empire. And so uh, I think Daniel 8 is so helpful to us in that it, it helps us understand these. Now, of course, that begs the question, uh, my logic students, uh, why does it matter that we know uh, what all these kingdoms are, okay? Here we get to the exciting part. All right, so go ahead. Turn to Daniel 2. Daniel 2. Daniel 2, starting at verse 44, please. Daniel 2, starting at verse 44. Why does all this matter? Here's what he says. In the days of those kings, the Romans, in the days of the Romans, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. That is the kingdom of God, established by Christ in his first coming, not his second. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Uh, the reason all of this matters is because it affects our understanding of the kingdom of God. Did, did Christ establish his kingdom when he came the first time? Is the wait over? Are we now conquering and ruling the world? Or does Christ establish his kingdom at a second coming, in which case we are essentially in standby in the wilderness, waiting for him to come back and do it? What's more important, the first coming of Christ or the second coming of Christ? I'm going to challenge you that by far, the first coming of Jesus is more important than the second coming of Jesus. First coming is more important than the second. I'm not denying that Christ is coming back, and that is very significant. That is our hope. That he will come back and raise us from the dead. But the burden of the Bible is on the first coming of Jesus. That's where the focus is. That is when he set up a kingdom that will never perish from the earth the kingdom of which we are now citizens. It's my belief that a summary of the gospel should answer three questions. What has Christ earned for us? How has Christ earned it? How do we receive it? I do not think the book of Daniel really deals with that second question at all. How has Christ earned it? Maybe a little bit, a couple verses about the ascension. If the figure in the fiery furnace is, is Christ, then it's Christ who saves us from the flame. But but really, there's very little about what Christ has done. How about the third question? How do we receive it? I see nothing in Daniel anywhere about justification by faith alone, that we receive the benefits of the gospel by faith. The, the, the focus is on the first of those three questions. What has Christ earned for us? And uh, first slide, you're doing great. First slide, what has Christ earned for us? Uh, has he just earned us deliverance out of Egypt, out of our slavery and sin? Or has he also saved us unto a life of conquest and dominion. Uh, I think Daniel focuses on this half of the gospel, what we are saved unto. You're saved. I'm, I'm happy for you. Praise God. But the purpose of life is not to go to heaven. The purpose of life is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And I mean, how do we do that? Sitting in a desert, waiting? Ah, ah, ah. I don't think so. 
So, you, know, you, you imagine an Israelite in, in the desert during those 40 years, and he wakes up in the morning. And I mean, what is he thinking? Is he happy? I mean, he, he's not a slave anymore. That's good, right? He's got manna from the sky, and he's got you know, a pillar of fire and smoke representing the presence of God, and, you know, great stuff, right? And yet, what a sad life. Useless, aimless, purposelessness. Just consumed with the constant awareness that nothing he does matters. Just waiting to die. That is not the Christian life. Do you understand that the wait is over? That Jesus' first coming is more important than the second Do you understand that we are not waiting for Jesus to come and save us from the hard work and responsibility of ruling the world? That rather we are waiting for all the kingdoms of the world to become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, that Christ might then return and hand over the kingdom to the Father. Do you have a clear vision for your life? Is your life charged with purpose, drive, focus, determination? You wake up in the morning, there's no doubt why you exist. There's no doubt why God has saved you. Do you wake up and remember where you are? I want that vision for you. Oh, how I want it for you. I'm happy God has saved you from your slavery. There is so much more. Let's pray.